0: Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to John's Gospel, the Gospel according to John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7. And if you're using a Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 892. I'm about for a word of prayer before we read. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and I pray that you would open our ears as we hear it read now That we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches even today. Your word is not dead, it is living and active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It exposes us before you. I pray that wherever we are cut, you would also heal with your good news. And whatever convicts will also, in, 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 along with that, you will strengthen us to walk in the truth. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> John 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea... ...because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand... ...so his brothers said to him... ...leave here and go to Judea... ...that your disciples also may see the works you are doing... For no one works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, then show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? ...and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man... ...others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. As we enter a new chapter in John's Gospel this morning... ...we also enter a new stage in the overall storyline... ...of Jesus' earthly ministry... The Holy Spirit has inspired John to draw our attention once again to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which is now the third and it will be the last reference that John makes to Jesus ministering in Galilee, which is the land just to the north of Jerusalem. So Galilee's up here, Jerusalem down here. In chapter 2, ...Jesus reveals His glory up in Galilee... ...and then He comes down to Jerusalem... ...and is immediately opposed by the Jews... ...especially the authorities. And then at the end of chapter 4... ...we see Him back up in Galilee... ...again revealing His glory... ...then He heads back down to Jerusalem... ...in chapter 5... ...where He is again opposed... ...by the Jews, and they're not just asking questions this time. It says they're persecuting him... ...and they were seeking all the more to kill him. And then now here in chapter 7... ...he's back in Galilee for a little while. About six months. But he will be heading once more to Jerusalem... ...where the hostility against Jesus will only be mounting... ...and will ultimately result in his crucifixion. So the new stage we're entering in in John's gospel... ...is that once Jesus goes to Jerusalem... ...in verse 10, he's not going back home. He's not going back home to Galilee. The cross looms over the horizon... Jesus has come to Jerusalem to stay and die for our sins. In the face of hostility, in the face of persecution, in the face of unbelief among His own people... ...Jesus is resolved to love His Father and love sinners unto death on a cross. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look at our passage... ...because there's, that's where we're going to end this morning before we take the Lord's Supper. The cross of Jesus should be in the back of your mind in everything you read through the Gospels. The cross of Jesus is the only hope for people like you and me... who need rescue from all our worldly motives... like self-worship and the approval of others and the fear of man. That's the problem... ...highlighted in verses 1 to 13... ...that we all need deliverance from. The problem there... ...in verse 5... ...is that his brothers do not believe in him. So there's unbelief saturating this passage... ...but what we're going to see... ...is that this unbelief actually has roots... ...that go down into... ...worldly motives. These worldly motives produce unbelief... ...which keeps people from seeing... Jesus for who he truly is. Another way we might say it is that worldly motives blind us to a wonderful Messiah. Worldly motives blind us to a wonderful Messiah. Now that problem will manifest itself in different ways... ...in this text, but it's the same problem throughout. So let's look at it together. And first off, we see that worldly motives... ...will seek to destroy whatever threatens our glory. We've got worldly motives. You will seek to destroy... ...whatever threatens your own self... ...and your glory. Verse 1 says that Jesus would not go about in Judea... ...because the Jews were seeking to kill him... Now, why did they want to kill him so badly? Well, turn with me a couple pages back to chapter 5... ...verse 44. And in chapter 5... ...we know that the Jews are persecuting Jesus... ...for healing a man on the Sabbath. And they wanted him dead... ...because Jesus was talking like he was equal with God. So instead of looking at the miracle... ...of making an invalid man walk... ...and believing that Jesus is really equal with God... ...they'd rather just assume he's dead. Well, Jesus tells us... ...why their unbelief is so deep... ...and why it's producing such hostile actions. Verse 44. How can you believe... ...when you receive glory from one another... And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. There we see it. Their belief has its roots in the desire to be praised, to receive glory from one another, not to seek the glory that comes from the only God. And we'll see this again in chapter 7, verse 18. We'll get there next week. But in chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus is exposing the real reason why the Pharisees don't ...believe. Why the Pharisees don't believe in Him. And they desire to kill Him instead. Jesus says... ...that this is at the root. The one who speaks on His authority... ...which is like the Jewish authorities... ...the one who speaks on His own authority... ...seeks His own glory. They seek their own glory. That's why they're angry with Jesus... ...so angry they want Him dead. They love the praise of men... ...over the praise of God... And Jesus is getting in their way. Jesus is calling them out on it. He's saying, you like to stroke each other, and so you can't see me for who I really am. I am God Almighty in the flesh, your Messiah. Paul, the Apostle Paul, highlights the same issue with the Jewish authorities in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. ...when he says that none of the rulers of this age... ...and he's referring to the Jewish authorities... ...none of the rulers of this age understood God's wisdom in Christ... ...which in 1 Corinthians he goes on to tell us... is ...God's wisdom in Christ is one of humility. God demonstrates his power through the humility of Jesus taken on the cross. None of the rulers of this age understood God's wisdom in Christ... ...for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory... What's Paul's point. You can't see the Lord of glory when you want to be the impressive one. Even if he's standing in front of you, healing people, an invalid man of how many years? Chapter 5? 38 years. Even if he's sitting there healing somebody, if you want to be the man on top, you will only see that healing as a threat to your authority, as a threat to your leadership, as a threat to your interpretation of the Bible, as a threat to your Sabbath day, as a threat to your temple, as a threat to your traditions, and you will want him dead. It's hard to see Jesus' glory when you're too concerned about your own glory. And that's why the rulers of this age killed Jesus. Paul was making that point about Jewish authorities... ...because to his amazement... ...the church in Corinth was acting like them. Boasting in their leaders. Playing the one-upmanship game... ...to the detriment of the church. So if you're a Christian... ...don't think that you're not vulnerable... ...to the same kinds of motives... ...that are found here in the Pharisees themselves. Paul saw them underlying the actions of unbelievers... Of believers, I mean, of believers who took their eyes off Jesus Christ. The temptation is real to destroy whatever threatens our glory. Think about it. It's bound up with the ancient lie of the evil one that nobody will rule over me except myself. And if anybody gets in the way, you fill in the blank. It's at the root of many of our anger problems. Many times we get angry with our kids or each other or our job or our circumstances because the world is not working by our agenda and people keep getting in the way of our kingdom. That kind of anger crucified the Lord of glory. Maybe you've put down others to keep yourself on top. Maybe you like to talk behind the friend's back to make yourself look better than them. Maybe someone comes up to you and maybe shares just something absolutely incredible the Lord is doing through their ministry, and you hardly show any excitement about it, any thanksgiving about it, because it makes your ministry look so small in comparison. You would rather destroy their joy because you feel threatened by it. Or how much kindness and gentleness fill your soul when your spouse notifies you of where you're in sin? Right? Have you ever experienced a temptation in that moment to kind of like shoot down the sin-exposing missile that's coming your way? When we know the right response is repentance and reconciliation and faith in Christ, but every self-righteous bone in your body... ...is tempted with, mayday, mayday, your sin is about to be exposed. All guns on deck, she even quoted a Bible verse. (laughs) You're just shooting these things down as they're coming for you. You want to shoot it down, you want to destroy... ...whatever is about to expose what's really true of your heart. It's wicked. And you're not all that glorious... When worldly motives drive us, we seek to destroy whatever threatens our glory. And we see that in the Jewish authorities here in verse 1. Another glimpse of this problem of worldly motives... ...blinding people to the wonderful Messiah appears in verses 2 to 9. So the worldly motives we saw in the Jewish authorities in verse 1... ...are those that seek to destroy... ...whatever threatens our glory. The worldly motives we see in Jesus' brothers... ...are those that promote... ...whatever brings us glory. So worldly motives also promote... ...whatever brings us glory. Read with me verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand... ...so his brothers said to him... ...leave here and go to Judea... ...that your disciples also may see the works... You are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Fair enough. Jesus' own brothers have witnessed some of his miracles. They've even believed the miracles are real and pretty impressive. And so they want him to do some more. Let's take this thing to the big town. Let's go public with these signs so that people will follow you. But here's what's so shocking about their words. John tells us they stem from a heart of unbelief. Is that shocking? I mean, they believe... They believe he's doing these signs. Let's go. Let's go to Jerusalem. Show them. But John tells us why they say it. They don't say it from a heart of faith. But from a heart of unbelief. He says that in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers have the same problem the rest of the Jews have had throughout the gospel of John. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and in chapter 4, verse 48. They want Jesus' signs without Jesus. They see the miracles... ...but they can't see what the miracles are ultimately pointing to... ...the glorious Son of God who's descended from heaven. They see the miracles... ...but they miss the glorious Savior behind them... ...which is really all that matters when it comes to saving faith. Saving faith doesn't want Jesus for his signs. Saving faith faith wants, wants Jesus for Jesus... ...to have Jesus. If you want Jesus for His power... ...without treasuring Him for His worth... ...and His glory and His cross... ...you do not have saving faith. Saving faith... ...doesn't want Jesus for signs. Signs save nobody. Jesus saves... ...and that's what every sign in His ministry... ...was supposed to be pointing them to... ...and they're all missing it. So their belief in Jesus merely for signs isn't sufficient. So what are they really wanting when they told Jesus to go perform his miracles... ...publicly in Jerusalem? They wanted to promote what would bring them glory... ...even if it meant using their own brother... I think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is nothing different than what we saw of the people in Jesus' hometown back in chapter 4, verses 44 to 45. Jesus enters his hometown there, and all the people, they're coming out and they're welcoming him. Yay, Jesus is back in town. But John, again, gives us a heads up of what their welcome and really, really amounts to. He says, a prophet has no honor in his hometown... ...their welcoming of Jesus is superficial at best. They're welcoming Jesus there in chapter 4... ...as kind of this hometown hero. His miracles make them look good. This is the man from Galilee where we live. They bring them bragging rights... ...but they don't welcome him as their Messiah. You don't honor Jesus... ...if you just want Jesus to do things for you... ...quite apart from having Jesus... Jesus isn't honored when He's used for miracles. Jesus is honored when He's received for eternal life. Jesus' brothers in chapter 7 are doing the same thing. They want to ride the coattails into, ride Jesus' coattails into Jerusalem... ...and Jesus calls them out on it in verse 6. He says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here... The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You see, when you're the light of the world, you can't help but expose the darkness. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. What's Jesus saying to them? Jesus' time to go up to the feast is not yet here, so, I'm not, so he's not going up. Their time is always here, so it doesn't really matter when they go up. The question Jesus is leading them to ask is... Wait a minute. What makes your going up to the temple different from our going up to the temple? What makes your going up to the feast different from our going up to the feast? What makes you so different? Verse 7 tells us the answer. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are... ...are evil. The world cannot hate Jesus' brothers... ...because Jesus' brothers are part of the world. That's the point Jesus is making. By saying what they just said... ...they are participants in its evil... ...to derail Jesus... They're not motivated by things that will bring glory to God. When they tell Jesus to go to the feast... ...they're motivated by the same things that the rest of the world is motivated by... ...the things that will bring them glory. It doesn't really matter when they go up to the feast... ...because the world isn't hostile to people who ignore the glory of God. They love it. But that's all Jesus is concerned about throughout His mission... ...doing only those things which will glorify God... He's not going to Jerusalem for self-promotion. We talked about this earlier. He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's not going for self-promotion like his brothers want him to go. He will go only as his heavenly father wants him to go. And that means no big show, but first in private. We saw Jesus choosing the same humility after he fed the 5,000. Back in chapter 6. The Jews wanted to ride him into Jerusalem and make him king. But Jesus denies it. In the same way, he's not going to the feast on his brother's terms... ...because his brother's terms are evil. They are worldly. The world hates Jesus because he keeps exposing people for what they really are. They really are evil to the core. And he's making the same point about his brother's... Surely if anyone among the Jews should be able to see Jesus for who He really is, it would be those who lived under the same roof and played in the same backyard and ate at the same table and slept next to each other in beds. But Jesus' point is that it doesn't matter what kind of blood you have, whenever you make friends with the world, you'll never see your Messiah. Jesus' mission is about more than signs for spectators. It's about sacrifice for sinners. And His brothers miss it altogether in a desire to promote their own agenda, which was for self-glory. They're not motivated by a humble Messiah who goes quietly to a cross. They're motivated by the same things that drive the world, like power and recognition and popularity and fame... And whenever those are the heartbeat of your life, you can't see the glory of Jesus and His cross. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, He's only a stumbling block. He's only a stumbling block to you when you want the signs, when you want the power, when you want the recognition. You miss Jesus altogether, even if you're His own brother. I can't help but wonder how these words of Jesus... ...continued to work in the heart of James. James eventually becomes a Christian. He's one of the brothers here. He wrote a letter in our Bibles. And in chapter 4, verse 4 of his letter... ...it says... ...he says, Do you not know... ...that friendship with the world... ...is enmity with God... Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think he got Jesus' point. I think God opened James' eyes to see the glory of Jesus. What are we learning here? We're learning that it's really hard to see Jesus when you want to be impressive. When you want to be the one made much of. You know, some of us laugh at the obvious examples of self-promotion, you know, like the guy that can't get enough of the mirror in the weight room. You know? But the truth is that self-promotion isn't far from any of us. Not because of our own fleshly hearts, but because of the world we live in. I mean, we breathe the air of self-promotion. We are the iPhone social media generation. Now I'm not saying that iPhones or social media are evil or worldly, but they can be great they can be great tools for glorifying God, but they can also become great temptations to promote whatever will bring us more eyes in the glory of man, more Facebook followers, more tweet, tweet, uh, people following you on Twitter or maybe you start a blog for good purposes but before long you're making too many visits to the stats page to see how ...important people are finding you. Maybe you're not into social media... ...but do you, you do a lot of name-dropping in conversation. Oh, yeah, I've read this book... ...and I know that guy... ...and we were at a conference together this one time... ...and then this other time. Or maybe you pretend to know more about something... ...than you really do in order to save face. Maybe you even serve Jesus. Did you know you can serve Jesus... ...from a heart of envy... ...and rivalry and pretense. So Paul, that's what the preachers in Philippians 1... And where Paul, ...that Paul mentions in Philippians 1.15 we're doing. Preaching Christ... ...from envy. Or have you ever made sacrifices... ...or served somebody... ...or taught or ministered in the church... ...and then kind of... ...you fish for compliments afterwards? So... Uh, What would you think? Oh, man, I think it was great. Well, you (laughs) know. Instead of just simply being satisfied with God's faithfulness to you. Our fleshly nature, it, it loves whatever promotes our glory. It feels so good to be made much of. And Jesus calls it like it is in verse 7. It's from the world and it's evil. It's evil because it overlooks the glorious one, the one who's really worthy of all of our worship and praise. The last place we see worldly motives blinding to people, blinding people to a wonderful Messiah is in verses 10 to 13. Except here we see something a bit more passive. So worldly motives destroy whatever threatens our glory. They also promote whatever brings us glory. But here we see worldly motives will actually hide things that might rob us of our glory. Verse 10 says... ...but after his brothers had gone up to the feast... ...then he also went up, not publicly, like his brothers wanted. He doesn't go publicly, but in private... The Jews were looking for him at this feast... ...and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people... ...while some said he's a good man... ...others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews... ...no one spoke openly of him. Isn't that ironic? Even if Jesus did give them a few more miracles in public... ...nobody would follow him in public... Go show them your miracles in public... ...so that they can follow you, they see you. They're not going to follow him in public. They're scared of each other. Everybody in Jerusalem is hush-hush about Jesus... ...because the ones who matter might do something to them. They might mock them in front of others... ...like they do to Nicodemus later on. They might uh, kick them out of the synagogue... ...like they did the blind man who was healed in chapter... Like ...what's going to happen in chapter 9. They might even attempt to kill him... Like the, ...like the authorities were going to try to do to Lazarus... ...in chapter 11. Chapter 12. This comes up again in, in chapter 12... ...and there John... This, ...this kind of fear that they have... ...it comes up again in chapter 12... ...verse 42 to 43... ...and there John reveals explicitly... ...what's at the root of the fear... Chapter twelve. You can go with me there. Chapter twelve is, is basically the climax of the section we just entered in chapter seven. So we're going seven to twelve is one big piece of what's going on in Jerusalem before the cross. And right at the climax, Jesus underscores everything which has been in the unbelief of everybody to then to up to this point. Verse forty two. Nevertheless, many. ...even of the authorities believed in Jesus... ...but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it... ...so that they would not be put out of the synagogue... ...for they loved the glory that comes from man... ...more than the glory that comes from God. The Jews are hiding what they believe about Jesus... They're being hush-hush because they could potentially lose all the glory that they've gained, that they've spent their whole lives building up. And they want to keep that glory, and so they're not going to talk too loudly about Jesus. They could be wrong about Him, and then they'd just be in trouble. They could be right about Him, and the Jewish authorities are going to get them. So they they don't talk too loudly about Jesus. Or if you're curious like Nicodemus... ...you just visit Jesus at night... ...so that nobody will see you. Just keep this under the lights. Under the darkness. Do you wrestle against this kind of worldly motivation yourself? I think most of us would confess... ...that we've wrestled with that at one point or another... ...in our own personal evangelism efforts keeping our mouths shut because of what others might think of us. Maybe others of you find it very difficult to confess your sins to other brothers and sisters because you don't want it to lower the way people view you. You don't want anybody to know the truth that you too are a sinner. I remember one time when I was uh, running the book nook back here. And I lied to a sister about ordering a book that I had yet to order. And I made it sound like it was the postal service's fault. Not my own. Trying to protect myself. Because I had forgotten to order her book. Then, when the Holy Spirit was convicting me of sin and telling me to confess my sin to her... I was tempted not to confess it to her... because of what she might now think of me. I'm like the worst book nook supervisor ever. You see, I wanted to hide... in both cases... I wanted to hide whatever could rob my glory... But the Holy Spirit would not let me because He knows that Jesus is the only one worthy of praise and honor and blessing. And so I confessed my sin to her and she forgave me graciously. But still, I gave in to the same worldly motives we see in these Jews. Whether Whether that manifested itself in open hostility or phony participation or isolated secrecy... The desire to be made much of threatens us every day and it blinds us to seeing the glory of Jesus as the Messiah, which we must see if we are to be saved. You must see that Jesus is the eternal Son of God if you are to be saved. If we do not not see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we will not be saved. And John 3 says that the wrath of God still abides upon us. So what hope is there for us in overcoming these worldly motives so that we can behold Jesus' glory as He so much deserves and we so much need? Our only hope for deliverance is found in it through the wonderful Messiah... Despite our bondage to self-worship, despite our friendship with the world, despite the idolatry of our hearts, despite all our worldly motives for this, that, and the other, despite the judgment we deserved for rejecting God's glory to get our own glory, God Himself looked down upon an evil humanity and He loved us. God loved us by sending His Son to live the life we should have lived on earth. A life with God's glory at the center and not our own. He sent His Son to die the death we should have endured. A death under God's wrath for spurning His glory. And He rose again for our eternal participation in true glory. God loved us by sending His Son to live the life we should have lived. Jesus came to deal with the temptation of self-worship we face. And He got victory over it. We know the temptation narrative from Matthew 4. 4, Satan says to Jesus, he shows them all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I'll give these to you. That's some glorious stuff right there. All the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give this to you. You can have this glory if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, I'm not here, Satan, to promote the glory of myself on your terms. I'm here to promote the glory of my Father by winning worshipers from all the kingdoms of the world through a cross, not a snake. Be gone, Satan. The Bible says that in every respect, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet he did not sin. What was the purpose of that? ...so that we, with confidence, can draw near to the throne of grace... ...that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's good news. Jesus took on the temptation of self-worship... ...and conquered it, even unto death on a cross... ...so that when you believe in Him, all of His life... ...and all of His victory over self-promotion... ...and all of His victory over self-worship... ...and all of His victory over self-preservation is yours... Yes, you will struggle against worldly motives until you die. But if you look to Christ... ...your standing before God in heaven is still secure. God counts Jesus' victory over sin as your own. And that victory empowers us to turn away... ...from all the worldly motives we will encounter. God also loved us by sending His Son... ...to die the death we should have endured. Only God is worthy of all praise. I just read this morning... In Isaiah 40, this is is the witness of Isaiah 40 proclaiming, Behold your God. And then it talks about him. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Hills, not heels. Get that right. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dusts. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Only God is worthy of all praise. And yet all the worldly motives inside us pretend that we are the ones worthy of all praise. Have you measured? Have you weighed the mountains in your hands? Are the nations but a drop in the bucket before you? All of our worldly motives inside us pretend that we are the ones worthy of all praise... Our sins stand the universe upside down with us on top and everybody, including Jesus of Nazareth, serving us in our glory. Our power and our self-image. That's called idolatry. And the Bible says that every human being is guilty of idolatry and deserves condemnation for it. That's the death we should have. Endured a death that consists of eternal torment under the fury of God's wrath. The results of self-worship are absolutely damning. But God loved us by sending His Son, Jesus, to suffer that eternal torment for us in three hours on a cross. If you believe in Jesus, God will not punish you on the last day for your worldliness because He already punished your worldliness when Jesus took your sins to Calvary. Does that mean we can just continue with all of our worldly motives? Ah, they're all taken care of. Absolutely not. Because God also loved us... ...by sending Jesus not just to live and die... ...but also to rise again... ...so that you walk by His power in true worship and not false worship. With God-centered motives... ...and not self-centered ones. He rose from the grave to send His Spirit... ...who produces humility before God, inside of us. And not a hunger for popularity before the world. Which means that should a desire ever creep into your life for selfish gain, should the fear of man rise in your soul when you're about to witness to somebody? Should the want to just cut someone off so that you can be first ever emerge should you begin coveting more attention and more approval from people then you know that where it comes from it does not come from the spirit of truth it comes from the hidden evils of your own heart And when the Spirit of God brings to your attention the satanic evils of self-worship, cry out to your high priest who's endured the same temptations and now stands before you at the right hand of the throne of God. Go to the throne of grace and cry out to God for mercy and strength to fight and eyes to see the wonderful Messiah again and again and again. Ask God, show me Him. I need more of Christ. That's why I'm pursuing these things, because I'm not seeing him clearly enough. Please open my eyes, like you did to James and the rest of the disciples. Open them so that I can see the wonderful Messiah. Worldly motives might blind us to the wonderful Messiah, but they pale when the Spirit of Jesus sets our eyes on Jesus. That's the Spirit's job. He shines in our hearts... So that we might have the light, so that we might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the more of Jesus' glory we see, the more and more we want Him to shine through our lives instead of ourselves. That's ultimately where we're heading. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, we're destined for an eternity of enjoying God's glory in Christ, not our own, but of God's glory in Christ. And how infinitely better is His glory in heaven than anything we can attempt to fabricate here on earth. The saints will forever delight in the glory of God. And this is our motivation to turn from all the worldly motives that we deal with. In fact, John, 1 John, John writes later in his letter that beloved we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We shall see Jesus as He really is, as the truly glorious one. And then he says this, And everyone who thus hopes, now, hopes in Jesus, purifies himself as He is pure. That's where we're going. But how eternally regretful you'll be... ...if you spend this life pursuing your own praise... ...only to discover on Judgment Day... ...that Jesus was the only one worthy of praise. There's a reason Jesus said what he did to his brothers. He didn't just rebuke them for the sake of rebuke... ...just to kind of leave them wallowing in their worldliness... He wanted them to see the signs that they had already seen... ...and He wanted them to see them rightly. He wanted them to come to Him for salvation... ...not merely for signs. He wanted them to be satisfied with God's glory... ...not a glory that would perish on the last day. He wanted them coming to Him as Savior... ...who rescues us from false worship... ...and transforms us into true worshipers. And Jesus wants all of us doing the same this morning. Coming... ...to Him as our Savior again. You know you can come to Jesus as your Savior again as a believer? Every day you come to Jesus for salvation. He wants us coming to Him as our Savior again... ...remembering His victorious life... ...where we fail. Remembering His death... ...where we need forgiveness. Remembering His victorious life... And remembering His victorious resurrection... ...where we still need strength... He even welcomes us to come and eat from His table this morning. This isn't our table. This is the Lord's table. And He invites us to come and eat from His table this morning. Not in such a way, though, that leaves us unchanged. We eat from this table as a community of people no longer driven by worldly Motives, but by a wonderful Messiah. We don't come to this table and we don't leave this gathering as people who seek to gain everything that we possibly can get our hands on to rule the world. We come as a people who lay everything down to win the world to Jesus. The truly glorious one. He is the one that is worthy of all of our praise. He is the wonderful Messiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious and true. And you are glorious in splendor and awesome in holiness and power. And we want to see more of Christ as we come to this table. So do open our eyes as believers to more of Jesus' grace and glory. And I pray for those who are seeing Jesus' glory, maybe for the first time this morning. And ask Him, if you would give them utter confidence that your word is true. You are worthy of all praise. Transform their hearts. Transform them into true worshipers. And transform us as a church that we may always set Christ and His humility before us. In Jesus' name, amen.